Hi, this is Mr. Saad of MyPartnerIsKinky.com, and you're listening to The Massacast. The Massacast is free and supported by listeners like you. If you like what you hear, and we're sure you will, please become a supporter of The Massacast by going to the website and clicking Donate. Hey, you've uh, managed to stumble upon another episode of The Massacast. Uh, before we get to this uh, episode, I want to say um, uh, I have exclusive offer for Massacast listeners. Um, this is not a paid advertisement. This is nothing. We're not making a dime off of this. This is just uh, the opportunity came up to give you something, and uh, I, I pounced on the opportunity. Uh, so Midori, uh, who's been on the show before, world famous, close, personal friend of the Massacast, Midori, uh, is having a uh, another rope dojo March 29th and 30th in Washington, D.C. If you want to see her on the East Coast, if you want to take part in the rope dojo, um, this is the place to do it if you're on the East Coast. Washington, D.C., March 29th and 30th. And uh, Madoy and I were, you know, shooting shooting emails back and forth, as, is, as, as we do, you know. Uh, and uh, she said, hey, what if we gave uh, Massacast listeners uh, an exclusive bonus? If they registered, I'm like, yeah. So here's the deal. If you sign up uh, for Rope Dojo in D.C., and if you mention that you heard it on the Massacast, you'll get a toy bag full of stuff from the stockroom valued at at least 100 bucks. You also get good pervy karma points. That's Midori's words. So pervy karma points and uh, a gift bag worth 100 bucks. From the stockroom. What's not to love? All you have to do is when you register for the Rope Dojo, uh, mention that you heard it on the Massacast and you get that free bonus, bonus gift. Again, not a paid advertisement. Uh, the opportunity arose for me to give you something and I took it. So, uh, again, uh, if you've never been to Midori's Rope Dojo, this is the place to do it. Perfect for any skill level. Again, Washington, D.C., March 29th and 30th. Uh, you can go to RopeDojo.com and find out all the details. There's a link on the Massacast website in case you can't remember all this stuff. It's all there. So thank you, Midori, for uh, giving uh, Massacast listeners uh, something, something extra. The only thing you're going to have to do is you're going to have to somehow not flaunt it in front of everybody else who registered without using the name-dropping the Massacast. You know? uh, so thanks, Midori, again for that. Uh, on with the show, this episode, uh, Morgana is back on the show. She's... Uh, West Coaster. She was visiting the East Coast. She stopped by our, our, our apartment and, and dropped some more rhymes for the house. Whenever she's on, I have to I really... You, you'll hear it here. Me struggling to try to not show my ignorance. Just, you know. And it's very apparent here, but, you know. I, don't, I didn't even need to point that out. You'll be able to hear it in just a second here. But it's always a good conversation with her. Here's Morgana. Take a listen. Da-da-da-da. Okay. Welcome back. Hey, it's nice to be back. I'm going to move this just a little bit closer to you here. Um, Hello. Ta-da, there you go. We, um, uh, I had so many, I'm sure you saw them too, so many people who loved your last episode. Um, and I mean, it goes without saying, we're going to have you back either way. But, um, you know, Stephen Colbert has this thing called the Colbert Bump. Oh, yeah. Uh, have you noticed, like, the math? Have you, how have you been dealing with the celebrity uh, effects of being on the Massacats. I mean, is it hard to walk down the street it's now? Hard, it's hard, like- yeah. No, it's, you know, it's, it's a series of trade-offs, but it's something that I, I'm, I you know, you, you, it's shocking at first, yeah. and then gradually you acclimate, and I'm sure, you know, 
people who are on the Massacast, Brad Pitt. These are these are the kinds of things you have to learn with. Well, you know, Pitt keeps asking to be on, right? And I'm like, <laughs> get in line, you know, honey. You're not really kinky officially. I mean, you're married well, to someone married who to could Angelina. be, like, that could right? Be. That could be, but I'm like, eh, I don't know. And he's like, what if I bring her along? I'm like, you know what? That's just. She always said that she would let the person who was her like truest love tie her up. Not that I've stalked Angelina Jolie for any <laughs> period of time, but there was a period there, you know, kind of post uh, Billy Bob Blood, but pre Brad, where she was like, the one that I would give up that control to would have to be like the person I'd end up marrying, and I'm all like present. And <laughs> then I remember when when, that, when when their like you know relationship was on the cover of People or something, I had this moment of genuine disappointment, like ah, oh, like I was supposed to date her. I think. <laughs> Everyone goes through that sometimes. As if oh, that was man, genuinely, uh, yeah, right? Like, if oh. only we had met. Exactly, right? exactly. Like, if that was just the timing was just off on that one. <laughs> uh, I have a friend who used to be like a key grip on movies, or I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what, but a low person on the totem pole. Key so grips are important, but yes. Sure, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think I was thinking key grip is low just because it just sounds, I don't know. It's all good. You you would know. You, you're, you, know, you know about these things better than I, but <laughs> not a big wig, let's just put it that okay. way. Maybe in charge of craft services. And he said he was working on a movie with Angelina Jolie. And, and another friend of mine confirmed this story is true. Okay. Working on a movie with Angelina Jolie. This was years and years and years ago. This is, I think, pre-Billy Bob, too. Okay. And uh, th- quite often their paths would cross. And she was very friendly to, that, to him. Mm-hmm. Very friendly. And she, uh, at one point, uh, invited him back to her place in a very, very flirty manner, right? And it wasn't whatever. And he just kind of blew it off and didn't think anything of it. And it was one of those situations where the guy doesn't know when women are hitting on him type of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, I had that too. I had that, you know, that, that affliction. Um, now, of course, I've just assumed all women are hitting on me. So it's just... But... Uh, but he, it's safer. No missed opportunities. Right. So our, our, our mutual friend goes up to him afterwards and says... What the hell did you just do, right? What did you just... Because it was like the last day of shooting or something like that. He was like, what? She was, she was just... And as she explained it to him, he replayed it in his head. And he <laughs> the was light like, bulb goes and on. And he actually said, no! No! You know? And he was like, oh my God! Yeah. And yeah. of course, he doesn't have her number. There's yeah, no way to get involved. of her. has sailed. Right. And so it's like the one thing... Yeah. Oh, those are those life regrets, right? He will be like 89 years old talking to his grandchildren about the day he neglected to go back to Angelina's hotel room. And what do you do in that situation, right? Do you say, um, I mean, you would think you'd have to take the risk of still trying to contact her even years later or whatever if you find her publicist. Hey, listen, I'm going to send an email to your agent. Hey, listen. Uh, can you forward this to her without reading it? You don't. You may not remember me, but you hit on me and invited me back to your place. Listen, if it's the offer still open, right. just saying. Wah, wah, Great wah. regrets of life. Great yeah. regrets of life. Yeah. Um. So yes. Yeah, so that's my that's my story uh, of uh, th- seven degrees of separation. Too. Seven degrees of separation of not going back to Angelina Jolie's hotel room. <laughs> I've got an amazing right. story of someone who didn't sleep. I right. didn't sleep with Angelina I have it, but I have this great story about someone who really didn't. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, so one of the things you said you wanted to come back and talk about is, uh, and we talked about it a little bit mm. when you were last on, and that is um, uh, BDSM as therapy. Mm. And uh, you actually have, you, you don't just, it's, it's not a hobby for you, right? It's, 
it's a, you have a interest versus interest, and you're actually trained in it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I mean, I think of things. There's, I can, I can unpack this this topic even a little further, because the, what is therapeutic is actually a tremendously broad sort of array of um, of self care activities, and so many of the folks that I work with in BDSM are really utilizing their kink as a self care method. It's a way that they're taking care of themselves. Um, and a part of that might be taking care of like a marginalized sexual identity or a fundamental, you know, sort of sense of self that's not well represented in mainstream culture, and that can be very alienating. But then a part of it is just that, like, you know, the the physical act, the emotional act of engaging in a kinky exchange has the same therapeutic benefits that others might find in taking a run or doing a yoga class or going to therapy. Um, And I, and I, you know, definitely tip my hat to like, as a person who's a a trained psychotherapist, I've got a a PhD in clinical psychology. You know, I've, I've, I've done that whole sort of gamut. I didn't know you had a PhD. I thought I was out of my league before. And now it's like, (laughs) there's paperwork to prove it. There is. Right. There is. And it was like an actual, you know, it was the school you show up to. I didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't the kind of thing you call it in wasn't for. I actually, Dr. Laura no, right. and it was in clinical psychology, right. not like exactly. English literature. Right. Um, and, uh, and so I appreciate the kind of like, you know, TM trademark on what we call therapy and what we call psychology. I think it's important to have medical separation for that kind of work. Uh, and I think what part of what led me to, go to graduate school, you know, several years back, um, was that I'd been playing in BDSM and, and in professional BDSM for long enough that I was starting to really see something that was making me curious about human nature on a level that I wanted to go beyond the anecdotal. And so I, and, and then what's interesting is I've kind of come full circle because I, you know, then got minted and I'm now, you know, like Dr. Morgana May. Yeah. And I, I actually have a postdoctoral specialty in forensic psychology. I did a tremendous amount of work, um, in, uh, with, with formerly incarcerated people in the state of California, yeah. um, and specifically with, um, people who'd been convicted of sexual offenses. So I was a, a certified sex offender treatment specialist for wow. a period of time. Um, at which time I was not advertising in BDSM, right? right? At which time you have to, you know, the, the board of psychology psychology likes you to pick. <laughs> they, don't, they don't want you doing both things. Um, and, and I came full circle and realized that while I could be um, licensed and practicing psychotherapy, it was going to be hard to do that while um, doing professional SM. And at the moment, the work I do in professional SM is so much more rewarding that that's, I've, I've foregone having a clinical practice right now. And I'm very explicit with folks when I work with them about right. that. Um, but what it gives me is this vantage point, having seen what, like, you know, m- trademark minted psychology, you know, psychotherapy looks like. Yeah. And knowing what it's like to work in consultation and coaching with folks and seeing how people express and explore themselves in their kink, in the dungeon, in the nursery. I'm left with this sense of abundance of what can be healing and restorative in kink. So before we get down to that, I, I, I have just a few questions or something, you just, you, a few points you just mentioned. Um, Did you like how much information I packed into that, that was answer? A lot. I was like, yeah, was wait, a lot. I had a preface it. There were like 20 prefaces and then somewhere in there, the answer to your question. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> Buried like a treat. You, 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 mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned something about, um, about you not advertising as a pro at the same time. Were you, mm-hmm. I, I mean, are you sort of obligated to be honest with the... Not that you were dishonest, but do you have to tell the board, "Hey, look, I do this other thing"? For I told a my supervisors. I yeah. wasn't licensed at the point at, the, at that particular time, and I told my supervisors. Absolutely. And what was there? They well, as one might imagine, I um, 
I demand a tremendous amount of mainstream respectability for my craft and for my community. Sure. And so when I tell a vanilla person about my life in BDSM, I think I do it in a manner that communicates it as something that is valid right. and needs to be respected. And so I was always able to be upfront with my supervisors in a manner that really didn't give them any avenue to shame me or suggest or consider it being problematic. I also imagine they got to know you first before you... Well, you know, I've been a community-based sex educator for well over 15 years at this point. Right. It's on my CV. So I would get placements. I would, you know, I got into graduate school in many ways with this kind of information there. Sure. Um, so I, I led with it. I will also say being uh, being queer helps with this because when you're talking with vanilla folks and then particularly straight vanilla folks, once you fly one freak flag, they just kind of assume we're all in the same group. <laughs> so I was able to say like, look, this is a part of my, this is a, this is a subculture. This is a community issue. Yeah. And I think folks kind of would often conflate that with my lesbianism and then just be like, oh yes, here's our, here's the person. If you need to talk about something outside the norm, right. we've got a go-to expert on staff. And folks were always very grateful for it, I think. Well, on one hand, I can see how that's a, a benefit because obviously, hey, this is something kind of in my mind. And if I, as a vanilla person, oh, in my mind, this is something weird. We got to go tell Morgana. But at the same time, there's a negative to that too. Thinking if it's weird, she's got to oh, know. Oh my about, god, right? yeah. And then of course, everyone on staff brings their personal issues to you. <laughs> so, right. so there's there's the there's the clinical issues, and then there's getting cornered in the break room by the person who's like, yeah. So my boyfriend wants to put food on me, and it's like, honey, we're at work. Right. <laughs> like I, right. there are, there are tasks to be done here. <laughs> yes. Do uh, so. There, there's something, um, and maybe maybe I mean you would know better than I, obviously, is uh, in the s- psychology scene mm. realm. It, uh, in the arena of professional psychology? That, that too, okay. that too. Add that to it. The scene just makes it sound much sexier than it is. It's true. <laughs> uh, you know, just a bunch of, you can't get in without a lab coat. Right, um, or a shawl. <laughs> there's a lot of misunderstanding, right? That where, where mm. something might be classified as a sickness or an illness. It used to yeah. be, you know. Oh, it still is. Yeah, it's, well, well, but isn't it even? Isn't it one of those things where, like, well, technically it is, but we don't really see it that way. No, or, it is. The really? paraphilias are still in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the um, American Psychiatric Association. I would say the field of psychology and mental health care in general, as it is practiced and originated in the United States and Western Europe, is to use a clinical term, ass backward, <laughs> with regard to uh, sexual variation in human sexuality and gender. It's Latin. It's Latin. Yeah. It's and and it's one of the reasons that I, I think went into the field was because I certainly come from a variety of communities that have been greatly maligned by professional psychology as a field. And there's a real uh, beautiful shift in professional psychology and in uh, mental health care where there are more providers now that represent those marginalized communities right. and the interests of those communities who are practitioners. And I'm delighted. And I do a lot of clinical training, actually, now. And I love seeing this generation of clinicians. But, um, you know, another reason I think that we go into it is because we want to push back and, and contribute to the science in a manner that helps it change course. Yeah. Um, but we also spend a lot of time banging our heads against walls because it's, uh, it's a train that's been set in motion. It's a, it's a train that's got, like, you know, over 100 years of 
of momentum behind it, and it's very hard to turn that around. But it's obviously the, the best place to do it is to change it from within. Right? It is a good place to do it. I have full respect and props to folks who do not want to be um, working from within the system. I yeah. think we need everybody on all points. We yeah. need folks pushing from the outside and people pulling from the inside. Uh, so the question is then, uh, how do you... When when you're in a when you're in a in a, a situation where you, people are dependent on the textbook, right? Mm. How do you say yes? This part is true, but the, this is not. And I mean, right? Well, and you, are you kind of talking? The question, I guess, is you're talking a bit about how you train uh, medical medical and mental health care professionals to be more sex positive. Yeah, and that's a smarter way to do it. Yeah. You, I, but for next time we sit down, mm-hmm. will you write down the questions for me? <laughs> I, I'll give you, here's the dummy thing I'm going to say. Can you just tell me how I'm it'll just sound? Sit down. I'm going to write myself a sheet of softballs. I'm going to line <laughs> them up and I'm just going to like, you know, put right. them all down. Right. Um, I mean, when I train clinicians, a lot of what I'm uh, doing is helping folks really, um, we'll do a couple of things. One, bring a sense of history and, and an understanding of history to their work. So in this country, in Western Europe, um, I think we can say globally, but I'll be kind of geographically specific. Um, medical institutions, mental health institutions are systems of social control. They're systems that have entrenched histories in categorizing and marginalizing and policing people. Mm -hmm. And I don't, um, I can be critical of that without having to burn the entire field down. But I do want to have an understanding of how these professions were uh, generated by the dominant culture, norms, standards, and needs. And so they're not just naturally going to be uh, receptive sure. to folks like me right, and the folks that are important to me. Especially if they say, well, you have a vested interest in it being called normal or, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So the first thing is, like, let's just get an aerial view. Let's, like, actually understand it's not an accident that we think and feel the way we do about sex. We yeah. actually were told to think and feel this way. Yeah. Maybe not in our generation, but it's in the groundwater. And we've not actually, it's it's new. Like, we are, I, I was trained in a very psychoanalytic institution. Um, I do not practice this way, mm. but I I'm very grateful to understand the mechanism of the machine that we're all in. Um, And that's that's the heritage. That's where we we get this from. Um, And then also to understand that the textbook is is useful and lovely, and we can cherry-pick out the things that are helpful. There's a lot of reasons to be able to have diagnoses. There are people in community that find diagnostic categories really soothing and organizing and that help them step toward care. And there are folks that find them oppressive and otherizing and should not have to be burdened with them if it's a thing that's antithetical to their care. And practitioners, I like to, to work with clinicians to have a, a more pluralistic idea of what it means to um, have an identity, have a label, um, have your behaviors conflated with your identity, and also get out of, and this is one of the interesting things, when you're minted as a doctor, I will speak from experience, there's this kind of moment where someone waves a magic wand over your head and says, you are an expert in your field. Clinical psychologists, speaking for my own field, have rarely a dedicated class to human sexuality in the course of the graduate training. If they do take one, it's almost always an elective. It's not a mandatory course requirement for the degree. What we are required to take is a 10-hour continuing education class in preparation for licensure. Um, 
these classes are generally speaking kind of god awful and most of the time folks can choose to take them online where you're taking a multiple choice question and you just kind of skim the article for the answer and the content of that class tends to be pretty heteronormative pretty mainstream yeah. so our these minted experts that we go to for our guidance and health and wellness don't necessarily have training just by virtue of being a doctor yeah. in these things and so a part of the work of doing clinical training of shaping this next generation of clinicians is to make sure that that information is included in graduate training, that people um, understand that it's not a, actually, it's not up to our intuition that there are folks out there doing great work in this field yeah. and that we should listen to the really, you know, kind of cutting edge, good science, the thinkers and the folks that are, that are working on it. So how do you from within, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who are in the, uh, in the same area of expertise that you are in, mm-hmm. um, how do they, how do they go about changing it from within? I mean, what's the secret? I mean, just keep harping. Is that the, is that the key? <laughs> just keep harping. <laughs> That's, I'm going to make a t-shirt. Um, I think, I think there's always more than one thing. Right? I meant harping in a positive I way. Know, I'm, okay. I took it right. that way. I think that it's always more than one thing. So I think that it's, um, it's one of those things that I tend to see, unfortunately, being a trickle up situation, mm. right? Because at the American Psychiatric Association work group level, those tiny cadres of scientists that are designating each diagnostic category in the DSM, um, those are folks that are pretty invested in the power that they hold to get those jobs, and they can be pretty insulated from... their their subjects, right? At the community mental health level, at the community clinic level, where you've got passionate doctors and therapists and caseworkers who are dealing with folks on on the ground, like boots on the ground, triage, this is how people live. Um, That's where I think the change happens. And I actually don't mind that because... um, because those are the folks that are actually impacting the most lives. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd love it if the big structures changed, but I do think that it, it, there's ways in which it doesn't matter if it changes on paper yeah. if individuals aren't doing the work. And we can start doing the work before it changes on paper. Yeah, and, and isn't this also a situation sort of like, listen, eventually it's going to just because the people who have the, the backwards belief of it are just going to go away, right? At some point, one hopes. Right. I mean, it is surprisingly multi-generational. When I see researchers... Um, who are in their like 30s, 40s, and 50s, who are so clearly from the kind of like John Money school of hyper-categorization of sexual difference, I'm often just kind of, you know, I just, I shake my head. Because, um, you know, power begets power, and I think yeah. there's a lot of, of uh, transmission of that style of thinking. But I also think we have some really great, radical, sex-positive thought happening right now. It makes me excited. Well, if I guarantee you right now, there are people who are hearing this and following you on Twitter right now, so mm. because... That was very impressive. Thank so, you. Um, so now let's talk about BDSM as therapy. Then. Yeah. Um, we talked about it a little bit last time you were on. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing that comes to mind is that, well, well, that obviously there are people who are using it, like you said earlier, they're using this therapy without their even knowing it. Right? Sure, just- sure. And I might offer you language of self-care, which is, I think, a little less confusing for listeners who might um, really be thinking of therapy in terms of that 50-minute hour yeah. where you're talking to a therapist and it's illegal for them to put their hands on you, right. which is good. Yeah, and, yeah, and so there's like some very good boundaries around what like therapy, capital T, is, yeah. and then the therapeutic or self-care. And maybe just for the ease of, of listeners for whom this is a new topic, sure. self-care would be a, a great... Um, um, I'll, I'll try to keep that in euphemism mind. Euphemism <laughs> to use, like, offer some new language. 
So the first thing that comes to my mind mm-hmm. is that how how do you identify uh, maybe if you're playing with someone like oh this would be a good I guess the question is what avenue do you use to to, uh, to help someone through something using BDSM mm-hmm. and in which situations should you definitely avoid using it? Well, and this question I love this question fundamentally. This question is how do I understand the difference between healthy and unhealthy sexual behavior? Yeah, and that's something that's I think incredibly important to kinky people because when we act out our unhealthy sexual sort of um, impulses, physical harm can come to us. Emotional harm can come to us, right? We're playing with sharper objects. And so you really can see the negative impact of a badly executed scene. I wouldn't say it's worse than when vanilla scenes are executed in an unhealthy way, but it's more overt and more obvious. So I think we tend to be um, much more concerned with issues of negotiation and consent than our vanilla counterparts, even though I wish actually vanilla folks did just as much negotiation as kink folks did, it would make for a much healthier sexual populace. But I like to think about this spectrum, right? And this this is a part of pushing back against traditional models of what's healthy, what's not healthy. Traditional models of healthy and unhealthy is there's a norm, and anything that's outside of that norm is uh, is deviant. Yeah. Uh, to use the actual, again, clinically correct use of that term. Yeah. Um, so heterosexual, vanilla, missionary, procreative sex is considered the norm. Everything kind of outside of them. I mean, that's literally where this notion of paraphilia comes from. These yeah. things that are outside of love, outside of the traditional um, coital relationship that is for the purpose of making babies. Right. So bonus, all you vanilla heterosexual people listening to this, you're probably deviant too. Because <laughs> unless every time you have sex, you're trying to make a kid, you're, right. you are stepping outside of God's plan. <laughs> um, and so I, instead of that rigid either or, it's a zero sum game, right? The West, we love a binary, yeah. right? You're one or the other, pick one. Yeah. And if you pick one, you can't be the other. You're black or white, gay or straight, able-bodied or disabled. Right. Instead of this notion of being fluid and flexible across the lifespan. So sexual health is not dissimilar. So I like to think about the qualities of an exchange, right? That would, to me, denote health and wellness and the qualities of an exchange that would, to me, suggest something that would be harmful to self or others. And then think about the arc, right? So this is in many ways privileging the process over the content. And, I, and I'll do this when I'm training clinicians. Tell me an unhealthy sexual behavior. And, and so then folks will, you know, tell me a behavior your clients think is unhealthy. Yeah. Well, masturbation is unhealthy. And looking at porn is unhealthy. Well, those, when, you, when it's focused on the act, that masturbation could be healthy or unhealthy. Yeah. It kind of depends sure. on the context of what it's doing. So is it consensual? Is it being done in a manner that is self-aware? Uh, is it being done in a way that before, during, and after, for the most part, you're feeling like you're doing something to take care of yourself or to take care of your partner? Uh, is it something that's being done among people with um, concordant age power dynamics, right? Youth get to have sex. They get to have it with other youth, not with folks in their 30s and 40s. Yeah. Um, is it being done with folks who can establish consent? You might really, right, this is the Jeanine Garofalo line, you can love your pets, you just can't love your pets, right? <laughs> yeah. Your dog might be awesome, yeah. still can't consent. Yeah. So, you know, that, that we're sure that these kind of things are, are in place. Are you, are you in your faculties enough that you're able to make this decision? Yeah. You're not high, you're not on a manic binge, you're not in the throes of a compulsive episode, right? And, and then on the unhealthy end of that spectrum, do you feel... Um, 
self-hatred or self-loathing or loathing for your partner before, during, or after the act? Is it not consensual? Are you uninterested in um, the the pleasure? So mutual pleasure would be something I would put on the healthy end of the spectrum. Sure. Um, disinterest in either your pleasure or the pleasure of your partner could be less healthy. And then it gets wonderfully gray because you could start plotting individual behaviors that are context-specific on that um, on that spectrum. And nine times out of 10 for me, when I'm working with folks in coaching and consultation relationships, the thing that's complicating it, the thing that's making folks feel like what I want in kink makes me feel bad about myself. So I don't know if it's safe to act it out is the power of guilt and shame and sex negativity and guilt and shame are very different, right? Guilt is uh, negative feelings about your behaviors. The thing I'm doing is wrong. And then shame is a bigger ball of wax. It's that sense of being wrong or bad as a person on a deep sort of cellular level. And we're handed those things down by culture. So everything could be lining up in the healthy end of the column, but you've got a ton of internalized shame or sex negativity about your cross-dressing interests or about your fetishism for diapers. Sure. And it's making you feel terrible about the play. It's making you act out. You have to get high before you play, like any number of things. But that reveals to me the kind of pivot point on which you might be able to help a person find out, can I, can I articulate this desire in a healthy way? And I think that's one of the hardest things to identify is when, uh, uh, if you're the person who is going to be playing, in, in, in many cases, let's say it's, it's the submissive, but it can also be the, the top, just as mm-hmm. much, right? But uh, I have friends who, if they've felt stressed or if there's something going on in their lives, then they, they just go find someone to play with. And sometimes that can be a very healthy thing for them, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's not. And mm-hmm. it's, I'm, it's really very difficult to identify the two. I'm, I'm kind yeah. of reminded of... Saad will do this thing sometimes uh, if I'm really super stressed or I don't know, I don't know what it is, but there's sometimes something is going on in my brain or in my eyes. <laughs> Saad sees that and she will say, do you need a beating right now? Not as a, not in a, hey, listen, asshole, yeah, yeah. but in a, I know you need a release and, you know, yeah. or X, Y, and Z. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there, there's times that I, I wouldn't even think about that, right, at the time. But at the, th- but when she says that, I'll be like, Yes, please. Or, or, yeah. or yeah, or whatever the answer is, right? And um, I don't know how she identifies that, mm. but she does. And I have other friends who kind of identify that them in, in themselves, mm. that, oh, I can use this for whatever. Mm. Um, so let's say, is, is getting over the guilt, is that one of the biggest hurdles Sure, sure. And I would suggest, I mean, often the the language that I think about it, because we can't really get over our guilt. It's just, it's a, guilt is a, um, it's a nasty little bug. I think of it much more in terms of healing it, right? So it's it's healing a wound. It's understanding who gave it to us, right? Because we we inherited that from someone. Um, And then figuring out how to, uh, how to drop it off somewhere <laughs> there's, a, there's a, a safe surrender site for that guilt and that's right. that's where we want to put it we don't want to unload it on someone else and we don't want to internalize it or, or bury it down in us so healing guilt healing shame i think that one of the things i love about this notion of hey do you need a beating is that it's next to impossible to heal ourselves or to care for ourselves from a place of scarcity and so folks who are not getting their needs met 
and are trying to grapple with fundamental issues about their happiness or their relationships or their sense of self, they're kind of trying to like run a marathon without having eaten anything. Yeah. So getting beating, getting beaten or playing or having sex is tremendous self-care. It's something that you do to keep in touch with what the abundance is like. Um, and, and so there's something about that. And this, again, I'm going to shamelessly flog my profession now. It's one of the things I love about being a professional domina is that so many of the folks that I work with are in that place of really transformative change in their lives. And they want to be able to play while they're doing it and maybe use the dungeon as a laboratory to really understand how they play and um, to do that outside of the context of a relationship because relationships are really complicated. Yeah. And so it's nice to say, look, there's a dedicated place I can get my needs met. I can keep myself in that abundance mode while I'm trying to sort this stuff out so that I'm just like, I'm getting beaten. I'm getting diapered. I'm getting dressed up. And I can develop that insight and use what I learn and cultivate here to springboard out into my personal life. Um, From that place of, you know, kind of smelling to others, like a a balanced person who's getting their need met, instead of like a kind of guilty, needy person who's not getting their need met, (laughs) which turns very few people on. (laughs) Unfortunately, though, not getting your need met can easily turn you into... Oh, yeah, it's a vicious cycle, right? Right, right. That's it. That's exactly it. It's a catch-22, because we tend to be... It's like, you know, you always find a job when you have a job. We we tend to be a lot more dateable when we're dating. (laughs) Or when we're, like, in something and folks can kind of, like, smell that on us. It's the weirdest thing. It's after... After uh, Sud and I got, you know, our relationship started, all of a sudden I was attractive to women who I had been interested in right. in the past, you know? I'm like, what, what? Yes, because on a Darwinistic level, right, somehow right. you had been stamped with the approval right. of, like... It, well, yeah, yeah. You had oh, been geez, chosen. Holy cow. I, didn't know, <laughs> I know he was good, but I didn't know he was sod good. Boy, right? Jesus, man. Exactly, exactly. It's kind of for submissive men, maybe, especially, right? Then you get to be <laughs> yeah. really, like, reflected in the, in the eyes of your dominant. It's, yeah, it's been really... It's been, it's been interesting. To, um... So, let, I mean, you, you've pretty much answered it. Uh, you know, we talked about uh, from the submissive or the bottom's perspective. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about from the top's perspective. Mm-hmm. That could be tricky on two, on two levels. Number one is uh, if you're about to play with someone and, uh, and you, can, you can tell, okay, this is, X is going to be therapeutic for them. Mm-hmm. How is that different from... I mean, do you take a different approach than if you're just going to do a normal play scene? Or is there... Hmm. Do you look at it differently? Like, oh, this is really... Instead of, oh, this is really hot, you're saying, oh, this is very helpful. I think it gets to be both and. Yeah. Right? I think often, for me, this framework of thinking about kink as self-care or thinking of it as one of the ways that we, you know, like a therapeutic exercise is a little bit after the fact, right? So it happens that you play and it feels really great and then afterwards you're like, wow, that feels really great. Like that like, un- that undid something or I'm like doing better and I might notice that I'm craving something because it'll take care of me again. Yeah. And then that language of this is a part of my self-care, I feel like it's, it's a way that we can validate and shine a little bit of light on our needs. And sexual expression, sexual connection, intimate connection, kinky connection is an integral human need. Yeah. And, and I think we don't get to frame it as such as often. So a part of using this language is a way of taking the thing that we might be doing that's fun and entertaining and getting to say, yeah, the entertaining gets to have value. It could have value that we elevate to the level mm-hmm. of something that we do as a part of our self-care in the same way that, like, I've got to get to the gym and I've got to get the nipple clamps on, <laughs> right? Like, like, those things are part of how I know I'm healthy and well and balanced. Almost everything we've been mentioning, though, has, like, again, it's been from the... Uh, 
bottom's perspective sure. or how it's sure. how it's helpful to the bottom or the submissive. <laughs> right? I know when I say I've got to get the nipple clamps on, I'm talking about me <laughs> right, right. getting the nipple clamp. I'm using, I'm gesticulating on a podcast now, but you know, right. me placing the nipple clamps on my submissive. So, so how how that's therapeutic or yeah. helpful for you? Yeah, and so uh, that's got to be really. Uh, how, how do you identify the difference between this is helpful in this way and this is just turning me on? I don't need to it's really... actually identify the difference. I think those things get to be the same. I think there gets to be a tight Venn diagram sure. between this is fun and this is a great way for me to relieve stress, feel greater connection with my partner, get intimacy needs met. Like those things, that that therapeutic work can be fun. Sure. Right? doesn't have to be work. doesn't have to be like dry <laughs> and clinical. Yeah. Uh, I guess I was just thinking like, so when you're playing with someone, mm-hmm. um, what, what, uh, is there like a, some sort of litmus test that you, mm-hmm. you're running in your head at the time? Like, if someone's going through something, you know they're going through something, mm-hmm. how do you kind of differentiate, okay, this might be a good activity and this might be a bad activity? I mean, a part of that is something I'm thinking about before I'm playing, because sure. I'm talking with someone before I play about why they came to me. If I'm playing professionally, I'm talking about why they came to me, what they're hoping to explore, what their kind of, you know, what their fantasy is. Mm-hmm. If I'm playing personally, I'm, you know, I, I'm often initiating when I'm playing personally. Um, I think because I, I have a career in which people come to me for play, um, and also maybe because I'm really intimidating and people tend to not, <laughs> people tend to not hit on me. It's, if I see something I want, I go off and get at it, and I'm now inviting all of these people to be like, oh, Mr. Smirgana says she doesn't get hit on. I'll take care of this. I'm doing well. My dance card is full, kids. Um, Crisis averted there. Right? But I um, it's, I will... Um, you know, you ask questions. So, like, what what's the point of interest? Like, what are we doing this for? And sometimes it'll be really overt. Sometimes I'll have folks call and say, this is what's a fun time for me. Yeah. Sometimes for me, it's like, okay, this is what's fun in terms of... Um, keeping that energy going, right? So, like, some of the reasons, I'll speak personally as a top insight into Mistress Morgana. I will sometimes set up play dates for myself that are really, like, me-centered um, when I'm not in the mood for them. Because I know it's important for me to just kind of keep that, keep those juices going, right? And I'll always have fun once I'm playing. Could you, but, can you give an example of... Yeah, there can be times when I'll be thinking, yeah, you know, it would be really awesome on a Friday night is like curling up with a book or watching a movie. Like, it's a lot of work to play or have sex or flirt or do any one of those things. And, you know, kind of architecting all of that and putting it out there just might not be what I have the energy for. And then I'll see often with like the encouragement of a partner or someone else in my life will be like, no, you should, you know, that that person you met at that party, you should totally like booty call them on Facebook <laughs> and like get them over to the dungeon and just like, just see what happens. Just kind of like, you know, kink around and play. Yeah. Um, and it's something that helps keep the momentum going because I think one of the kind of dangers of not fulfilling ourselves in terms of play, in terms of intimacy, is that we can get kind of stagnant. And, you know, one of the problems of being over-fulfilled is that we can get kind of compulsive, right? So there's, there's like, extremes yeah. on either end. And what we're looking for is that nice middle ground of, I play enough to keep everything kind of well-lubricated and moving, right? Like... Chain's not going to rust. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not, you know, doing it so much that I feel myself actually chasing through it to the next thing. I'm always looking over someone's shoulder at what I could be doing next. Right? How do you, uh, maybe you've never experienced this, but um, I was talking to a friend recently who uh, 
she's a dominant, mm-hmm. and she had a scene which was very outside of her norm. Most of her play scene play scenes are very sort of like pick up play type of thing, mm-hmm. but at the same time, they're all very I don't know how you call it goddess worshipy type of mm-hmm. thing, right? And because um, that's what she kinks off of being yeah. sort of like being you know, revered, yeah, being revered, and. She was. She she mentioned how in this scene, the person she was playing with basically sort of they they sort of took her down a few notches. Right. Mm-hmm. It was the exact opposite of what not only turns her on, but what she normally experiences. And in that ca- in that case, the play actually really kind of hurt her a lot. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. they they mentioned something she was very she's very sensitive about, and um, for mm. her it was quite the opposite effect. Mm. Obviously, what she was going for. Um, I mean, I can't imagine how one recovers from something like that, other than going out and finding the type of play that really, right. you know, clicks with you again, right? But right. well, and this is the thing I think, and maybe we do this more in kink than in other areas. I don't know. I'm super kinky, so it's hard for me to imagine being purely vanilla. But I do think we sometimes set out having a bad scene or having something that goes kind of wrong as being this thing that we must avoid at all costs. Yeah. And the truth of the matter is we have kind of scenes where things work and things don't work all the time. Yeah. And in many scenes, there's like, okay, this amount of stuff worked, and actually these things were misses. And there are times when like boundaries get violated, and it isn't um, a trauma. Yeah. And, and you know, I think we overutilize the word trauma. Right, trauma is something that um, really threatens our physical integrity and our survival, mm-hmm. and it's really serious. And for folks that have endured genuine trauma, I think it's important to preserve the integrity of that term. I think what most of us, thankfully, experience is a really awful time that wounds us that we need to be able to recover from, or a kind of shitty time that's disappointing, right? Yeah. Can I swear on this? I'm totally swearing. You totally swear. Um, totally swear. And, and I think that what's important, one of the ways we heal or recover from that is by giving ourselves permission to have scenes go bad or wrong in a way that's actually pretty natural. That's part of the process. It's not something that lives within us. It's not like, oh, I'm bad, mm-hmm. which is why the scene went bad. This thing I'm sensitive about is fundamentally true, and this person brought it up, and that's why the scene went bad. Yeah. But that there was a misstep. So, you know, I've got a sensitivity that my submissive ground my nose into. Crap, I'm totally in touch with the fact that dominance get boundaries too. And that it's really hard for dominance to articulate boundaries. So what are the ways I go forward in my play? Like, how do I feel that feeling? Let myself have it. Let it be normal and natural and not this deep, dark thing that's a flaw in me. Everybody gets to have a bad scene or even a component of a scene that's kind of funky and then how do I want to use that information moving forward um I work with a lot of novices and one of the things I always tell novices is that there's kind of good news and bad news (laughs) bad news is when you have no idea what you like your chances of learning through doing something you don't like are extremely high yeah sure the good news is we're going to work in a way where that thing you don't like is going to happen slowly it's going to happen safely it's not going to cause bodily harm we're going to not be doing anything in a way that would really leave you damaged and you're going to know something more about yourself coming out of it than you did going in and that kind of self-awareness is really powerful. So I like to reframe crappy scenes as opportun- as growth opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> You're not American. You're right? an American. That's it. My friend has this great thing that he wants a mug that says, great, another fucking learning opportunity. <laughs> I always want that mug. That's on my Christmas list. <laughs> have you thought of, I mean, I'm sure people, plenty of people have asked you this. Mm. Are you working on a book? Yeah, it's so funny. I don't have time to do a book. And I feel, I'm at this point... You know, I've, been, I've done professional SM now for coming on 19 years. 
and I've got this whole sort of like professional psychology experience and, and life and background. And I have a, a book that I would love to write and that I've actually done some preliminary research on that actually, you know, sort of straddles a bit of my experience in both. Mm-hmm. And, um, I've got a few other really big creative personal projects going on. Oh, okay. um, so the thing I'm, I'd actually be the most interested in doing right now is is maybe doing something more along the lines of a column, where I'd be able to write a little bit all the time. And you, you know, you do that for eighteen months, you have a book. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but it's um, I, I I spend so much time actually doing individual consultation and coaching with folks that I, I'll often find myself. Yeah, I teach the book. <laughs> I am the book. <laughs> I'm just I'm, I'm the book in heels. <laughs> um, we have quite a few questions that people ask yes because I, I i did go out to twitter and to the uh kinkiverse and said look i could definitely use some help in this area because mm-hmm. you know uh just because well you know yeah hit me. and um here are just some of the questions here what uh knowledge and experience prepares a dom slash top to work on a deeper level with a sub or a bottom I guess you can read that as any way you want. I was going to say, what do we mean by work? So, like, to play in a personal sense or to work in the professional sense? I read this and I think, um, is there a specific uh, set of knowledge or or skills that you have about when you're about to play with someone? Is there some like must-have knowledge of uh, of your partner, um, regardless if it's pro or not? Uh, Is -hmm. there something you're always like, I need to know X about this person so I can have a good scene, or just so I can. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things that are on the general level. So, you know, when I play with someone, I need to know what their limits are. I need to know what their limits are actually more than I need to know what their fantasies and wants are. I can probably feel my way through the things that they'll like, you know, press it and see if it smiles. (laughs) But um, I need to know what the limits are, and uh, and I I don't want to intuit those. And there's a a combination of factors there. One is that... um, I am not a mind reader and I'm going to need someone to take responsibility for themselves and share that with me. And then also I'm giving a lot as a top and part of what my bottom gives back is that information so that I'm not having to do the sort of energetic work of dominance at the same time as I'm being a sleuth. Well, so yeah. I want to know the I want to know the limits, and then as the the thing I would want any dom to know about themselves before they play is um, why they're playing. Right, like just on some general level, what's what's the what are the emotions, what are the feelings, and the things that you're seeking for this, uh, for, you know, to to engage in this experience? Here's one I've never heard about this. Uh, what about healing shame? Healing shame. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I suppose it kind of makes sense, I guess, when you just hear it. But does that mean anything specific to you? About healing shame. Healing. Uh, I don't. So I don't know if they mean healing through shame or healing. I'm going to take that as healing shame. That, okay. that one of the things that we can do in BDSM. And man, let me tell you, I I find this with women, with women so much. So, and it's it's not to say that men don't have powerful, powerful places of shame. And I think far fewer cultural 
outlets to be able to express it. But um, I will often find the very ritual work that I'm doing in my dungeon with personal partners, as well as folks that come to me for professional scenes, being healing shame through ritual work um, and really like methodical ritual work that should also be fun and make someone feel good. But is yeah, it's purposefully calling out those places in our body. It's like it's a it is a somatic therapy in a sense, finding those places that we tend to hold things in our body. Right, shame is a really embodied experience. We don't think through it as much as we just, it, you know, kind of comes up through our pores. And I have had really powerful experiences using BDSM ritual as a healing mechanism for shame. So if you have someone, how do you deal with someone who kinks on shame mm. or degradation or something like that? Right. But at, I mean, wh- what's the line for that? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, there, I don't think there's a universal line. I right, think that I mean, it's, it's varied. Do you, Did you love, I'm always going to give you these very frustrating, like, <laughs> it's different for every people. Um, Is there like a sixth sense? Do you have a spider sense that warns you of danger when you're getting too close or... I think it's, I will see it more in terms of not one-off play experiences, but patterns that become apparent in a person's overall relationship arc. So, like, I can't say that it's good, bad, or indifferent that a person might have a scene in which they're really pounding on some internal um, shame concern. And it's like, you know, it's like they're picking a scab. They're just, they're going for the, the thing that that's a wound and they're not actually interested in healing it. They're interested in like sticking something in it. Uh. And, um, I cannot say like authoritatively that that's always bad or always good. Yeah. Um, what I'm more concerned about is, is a person's, um, process of shame worked into their eroticism so that the only way that they can actually experience intimacy is by experiencing that shame cycle, which is actually, um, my concern about that is that it's actually clinical narcissism, that it's not actually relational because in those kinds of dynamics, the women aren't partners. They're objects that serve to humiliate or degradate. And this is not humiliation and degradation as I think 90% of people practice it, which is erotic embarrassment. It's that kind of, just on the edge, not at the core of my being, but like on the periphery where it tickles versus I'm sticking a knife in my heart. Um, and, and I'm more concerned about that. And what I would expect to see in a person whose kink looks like that is that that would be entrenched throughout their relationships, that it's not just showing up in their kink. It's showing up in their friendships and it's showing up in their interpersonal relationships that aren't kinky and, and it's long-term that it's not something that just kind of happened this summer. Yeah. Um, and that would be a really excellent example of places where more traditional psychotherapy is really useful. Yeah. Right. Um, and unfortunately, I think your chances of getting a really kink positive therapist that can help work with those issues is pretty low. So then what we run the risk of is the therapist who doesn't understand how the sexual acting out is one part and is likely to grab on to the sexual acting out as the ideology of the problem rather than this broader characterological organization that's about being narcissistic or about being incapable of mutuality in relationships. Is the kink-aware professionals list, is that, is that where you know? I love it. Yeah, that's oh, where okay. I would send folks You were shaking your head. I'm like, oh, is that... Oh, yes, is that I'm nodding. Thing? Yes, right. I'm like, I'm, I'm, my head is going in a circle. I'm so aggressively <laughs> nodding. Yeah, the Coalition for National Freedom, no, Coalition for Sexual Freedom, right. National Coalition for Sexual Freedom, um, ncsf.org, mm-hmm. has a listing of kink-aware professionals, not just psychotherapeutic professionals, but medical professionals, 
legal professionals, incredibly helpful yeah. for folks in um, kinky relationships and poly relationships who are looking for healthcare, legal assistance, accounting that's going to not shame them because of their kink or assume that the kink is a problem. Uh, I wonder if I could get listed as a web designer. I a professional. Even, you should you should let them know. I mean, also, because I will say there's some bad kinky web design in the yeah, world. You'd be right. doing a, a good favor. Uh, Let's minimize those animated flaming chain gifts, kids. <laughs> right. <laughs> or the music that starts right away. So. Right? Well, the thing is, is that there's a lot of people... Uh, this is nothing to do with there. This is all about web design. But there's a lot of people, <laughs> when they're looking at these sites, they're, they're horny and turned on. They're willing to forgive a lot. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um... I know I always feel like I have the opposite website for this. Like, if you were looking to, to jerk off, right. you are not going to my site. My site is a wall of text. If you would like to sit back with a cup of tea and have a read and enjoy a picture of me in a corset, www.mistressmorgana.com. <laughs> if you're looking for, um, yeah, for something that's just going to immediately make you hot without having to read anything, maybe not so much. Well, that's sort of what uh, it brings the type of clients you want, right? Yeah, exactly. that's exactly yeah. it. That's exactly it. Um, but at the same time, when you ask... Saad has this thing, this same issue, because she has a lot of text on hers, and one of the most common replies is, did you read my, (laughs) you know, uh, even the contact form is, did you read it, right? Yeah. I got matrixes. I see the pages people hit. I know people go to the gallery, first, second, third, fourth, and fifth. (laughs) I'm building building a new site for her right now, and um, one of the things I thought would be funny was, is in the, in the contact form, have some sort of, instead of a CAPTCHA, have sort of a what was the point of paragraph three on film? Yes, I love that. That's great. Here's one. Uh, I would like to know your take on the new DSM paraphilia disorders. Ah. The difference between paraphilia and a paraphilic... Paraphilic? Paraphilic. Paraphilic disorder. Particularly, what constitutes normative and non-normative sexual behavior? And how is this... You can tell I did not write this because it's smart. And how is this... uh, now defined by the psych community, I think the changes are for the better, yet mm, such mm. a long way to go. It's such a great question. Okay, I'm going to try to give you the short answer while also to maybe um, opening up for your readers what, what paraphilia is. So um, paraphilia is a, uh, it's a clinical term. It's, it's a psychoanalytic term, actually, that has replaced sexual deviance right, which would be the kind of um, turn of the century through the 1970s term for um, sexuality that is outside of what is considered mainstream. Uh, Paraphilias are considered sexual behaviors or fantasies that are outside of the mainstream, and the language actually first appeared, well, it was, I think that language actually first appeared in um, the 1920s. It wasn't actually Freud, um, but it's a psychoanalytic term. Mm -hmm. And it first became a DSM category in DSM-3, which I always find very significant because DSM-3, which came out in 1980, is the first DSM to not have homosexuality in it because there was this well-fought campaign on the part of gay rights activists to get it removed. Mm-hmm. And I always feel like that removal kind of came at a cost right. because the homosexuality got out, but they really needed to categorize something. So gender identity disorder came in mm. and the paraphilic disorders were really expanded upon. And this language of paraphilia um, is incredibly problematic. And Charles Mosier actually writes, I think, really eloquently about this. Um, It's a uh, series of diagnostic categories included in the sexual and gender identity disorders section that include things like pedophilia, 
uh, voyeurism, exhibitionism, right? Non-consensual criminal acts, mm -hmm. sexual sadism, sexual masochism, and cross-dressing, transvestic fetishism. So, like, immediately we're kind of lumped in with really questionable, like, one of these things is not <laughs> the other, right? You're like, how, how did I end things? up here? Yeah. Um, and I used to have a great drinking game, actually, with the sexual sadism, because the, the criteria are confusing, and do not adequately, the critique, which I agree with, is that they don't adequately differentiate between a sort of antisocial, um, narcissistic or um, psychopathic desire to harm another person, which is likely going to be sexual, among other things. Mm -hmm. And the thing I enjoy on a Tuesday night, which is like beating the crap out of someone because it makes us feel good. Yeah. Right? Um the DSM-5 tried to respond to those critics by saying, well, you can have a paraphilia and not have it be a disorder. So there are people with paraphilias who do fine in the world. And then there are people with paraphilias that have a disorder. And the way we know it's a disorder is that they experience undue stress, which is also problematic because, of course, when you're a sexual outsider and, for instance, the thing you like to do on a Tuesday night is included in this giant book that also has things like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and stuff that can be really compromising to people's lives. Automatically. I might be feeling a little bad about myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a move to be able to acknowledge that people can have paraphilic sexual interests that aren't disordered. The greater move for me would be one that examined why we feel the need to categorize every sexual desire and expression outside of the mainstream. Yeah. Heterosexual people are never asked to describe the ideology of their heterosexuality. Gender-conforming people are never asked to describe or categorize the kind of gender-conforming man or woman they are. Vanilla people are never asked to describe their vanilla sexuality, even though vanilla sexuality is tremendously diverse. But we... we have a categorization fetish for sexual behavior and expression that is outside of the norm or atypical. Natural, but less frequent. But the thing is that I find when you run into someone who does believe that either anything, homosexuality or anything, mm -hmm. is uh, a choice, right? Mm -hmm. Whenever I hear anything like that, the question when you ask, well, when did you decide to become heter heterosexual, mm -hmm. is the automatic... I mean, that's the ultimate question, right? Mm, mm. Um, and when, so when people can kind of put these two things together... Mm -hmm. um, well, and that homosexuality was actually a paraphilia just up until um, recently, yeah, right? So yeah. up until the 1980s, we really considered homosexuality to be paraphilic. Yeah. And now we're able to say, no, 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 homosexuality isn't paraphilic. Um, and again, we have this conflation. And I, with my background in forensics, I understand the utility of being able to categorize certain kinds of harmful sexual behavior that really are outside of, of um, the kind of expected sexual behaviors. There's actually pretty compelling work, um, neuroimaging work, that pedophilia is something that is um, biological, it's neurological. You can see it on an fMRI and you can see it in people from extremely young ages, that it's, it's intrinsic, it's born, right? So those kinds of things are they merit research. The thing that I have a problem with is that the same scientists that are telling me about um, harmful things like fetishistic rape and pedophilia are also telling me that my trans friends and my kink fall into this category as well. So I'm kind of suspicious of their science. But it's, it's, really, it's, it's really frustrating because these are the same people, like you said, who got it wrong on so many levels yeah. Yeah. in the past yeah, and you can just say, "What? How, how do you? I mean, 
Yeah, I'm not trusting my source so much, right? Yeah. Ray Blanchard is not on my Christmas card list. Sure. These are not scientists that I look at and feel really compelled by the quality of their science. And they've got blind spots you can fit a semi in. Yeah. So, so that's a part of our work, I think, on the community level is to... Um, do our own research, speak our own truths, understand our experience. You know, DSM-5 is a pretty wacky, it's a pretty wacky document on a lot of levels. There's a lot of change, and it'll be interesting to see how the field, I think, responds to it over the next few years. And also, it, I think it kind of requires, company uh, says the person who uses a fake name, it requires more people <laughs> being out, right? More, more, I should say, more public figures being out type of thing maybe sure or just more explicit conversation because we do deserve privacy and especially if privacy is the same as safety yeah. right if, if privacy is helping us keep our house and our job and walk the streets safely at night that's really important yeah um but um yeah i do i do certainly want to see a, a shift in the way that the the thinking there happens someone just sent this email they, they sent this from their phone so okay. i don't know Typos and all. Let's hear it. Well, it's not so much typos. It's just like sort of missing context, but it could be... Was it typed with one hand? <laughs> Maybe. It could be. Could be. Uh, because I know that conversations about the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association are going to get some of your listeners... Sod's sitting behind you. She's been looking at me every now and I'm like, mm, it's on. It is on. The second you're she, gone. She's back there with a bottle of lotion. <laughs> she's, like, she's like, this is good. Uh, so this is a question to you, okay. obviously. In her experience, hers, you. Me. In her experience, is it healthy to act out these fantasies? Yeah, well, that's broad. Uh, what, is, okay. what has she seen to be the benefits or drawbacks of this kind of role play? I, again, I need a noun. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, let me, let me, maybe, maybe this person, I'm going to quickly reply that. Maybe you can, you can identify it in generally, and maybe they'll reply back by, by the time you. By the time we wrap up. And this is, I will give you a meta answer to this as well. Very often our questions about ourselves and others with regard to sexual variation come in a yes or no form. Am I healthy? Why am I like this? Right? What's the source of it? And is it okay? And the frustrating answer is actually, these are not the questions to ask. Right? The question isn't, why am I like this? This is a question of etiology. And as we were saying, majority culture people are not asked to identify their origins. Mm -hmm. It might be fascinating to understand the origin, but it's too um, interwoven with this groundwater historical need to explain why we're wrong. I think the much more interesting question is, what do I get from this? What does this do for me? Yeah. How does this serve me? And how is this complex for me? Right? That those are really interesting questions that invite a lot of not only discussion within oneself, but with one's partners. And then the other question, which is this, is this right, is this wrong, is, um, you know, sometimes, uh, because it's context-specific, yeah. because it invites us to look at our kink in the context of our broader interpersonal relationships and our capacity for relatedness. Yeah. And that's something that, um, you know, we don't do enough of. In, in our culture and it's a little bit of an advanced skill and it's never you never lose when you do that even if you come up with something you're not really thrilled to see there's always information and that information that introspection um, is necessary for sexual health and that's where having a team can be helpful because I, the other thing I will say is that we are a um, rigorously individualistic society and we like to bootstrap it, and we like to be the person who understands ourselves and, you know, fosters our own stuff. Sure. 
And I just think that we do, we do this very poorly in a vacuum. Um, and having folks around you that you can talk to about this and reflect on, who might be able to reflect things back to you, is really important. There's a lot of armchair therapists in the BDSM community, right? It's so true. Um, I love this armchair therapist, because really, most therapy is conducted in an armchair. Well, this is true. This is true. Um, there's one other question I'm trying to find. Did you get an armchair therapist question? No, no, no. Oh. Um, and so, uh, if you if if someone's out there talking to people, or maybe they're reading something on mm-hmm. FetLife, mm-hmm. how do you? I, I I wouldn't be able to tell, but I'm sure you can. Mm-hmm. Is there are there any specific red flag that someone can be reading a blog post, reading a forum thing, mm-hmm. where you can you can point and say, ah, this person is clearly full of shit. Is there something where you can just say, oh, I know this. I'll give you I'll give you an example. It's almost like if I'm listening to a podcast about technology Mm -hmm. and someone says OS X instead Mm -hmm. of OS 10. (laughs) Yeah. That's the shibboleth. I'm I'm sitting like, ah, I know this person's full of shit. They don't know what they're talking about. Right. Done. And I walk up. Yeah. Um, Is there, is there a shibboleth for, for, you know, armchair therapy when you're like, when someone says this, they're like, okay, never mind. Like if they quote Freud or if they do, I mean, is there something that just automatically for you, uh, the people listening right now can go. All right, okay. I know this person's thing. I mean, it's interesting. I've seen I've seen some pretty compelling thoughts about this around like um, people. There's this whole thing now where you can be a sex expert, or you can be a sex educator, and there's a lot of. I mean, the main thing I'm going to be wary of is someone who positions themselves as being a unilateral expert. Um, that that's always a little bit. I'm wary of this. I'm, I'm much more. I'm much more interested in people who are thinkers and writers or clinicians who are actively engaged in their field and are interested in information share, sharing things that they think about, sharing work they've done, without necessarily needing to have a white knuckle grasp on this role of expert. So, if, if someone claims to know. So I'm, and it's, I'm not necessarily even going to discount them as being like you know frauds or fakes, right? Um, or not really of this tribe, charlatan, right? But I, but I am going to maybe be less interested in what they have to say because that kind of rigid, um, either or unilateral thinking, the kind of I can make a universal claim, I just find not as reflective yeah. of the authenticity and truth in most human dynamics, which tend to be pretty varied and a lot of gray area. So it's almost a good idea. Or you could almost always discount someone who doesn't start their reply with, it depends, but... And when it comes to sex, I want to hear a lot of it depends, but... Or a lot of, there's a few answers to this, right? I mean, I think that there's a few things we get to be really hardline about. Yeah. um, And they involve things, um, like, really, like, you know, like, like... uh, non-consensual sexual violence, right? This, this sort of thing that, but you know, even within that, I think someone could say, well, my partner and I have a well-architected non-con, uh, you know, sex scene that we work out and we've been very happy with it. But, you know, I, I think that we do understand what the extreme of that spectrum looks like. And I'm not very interested in, um, you know, being a, a rape apologist. I'm not very interested in, um, like the intellectual conversation there in yeah. many ways, just because it's like, no, that's a really serious thing. And I want to respect that and just call it what it is. But other than that, no, people who are giving me the, like, I am an expert and here's my unilateral decision yeah. on this thing. I'm sort of like, yeah, okay. Because there are, I mean, there are a lot of great sex educators out there with, with, who are not doctors, obviously. Mm. Right. Um, so yeah. I, I, that's and you good. notice I don't run around with my doctor flogging it. Like it lets, you know, like I'm, I'm, um, 
I worked very hard to have the sort of um, educational background that I do, and I have a great critique of of people with a lot of letters who are um, bestowed with a kind of authority that I don't necessarily see us getting just by virtue of having the letters. But you have the opportunity now to do a Steve Martin. You know what? Steve Martin used to do this thing, and he still does every now and again. When someone says, uh, Mr. Martin, he'll say, please, call me Mr. Steve Martin. So now you can do the same thing. You say, please, call me me Dr. Mistress. (laughs) Yeah. Dr. Mistress. Mostly when I'm booking airline travel or hotels. (laughs) Honestly, that's it. (laughs) Um, Oh, I think this person. (laughs) Did we get a noun or a vowel? Okay. Uh, BDSM Mm -hmm. space. Forced feminization, space, domestic domination. So, Nice, those are specific. In your experience, is it healthy to act out these fantasies? Forced feminization, domestic domination, BDSM. BDSM, Uh, You just ran that question like a Mad Libs, by the way. That was amazing. Yes, yes. Um, (laughs) What have you seen to be the benefits or drawbacks of this kind of role play? Let's Let's, because the one, there's only one that's really specific, and that's forced feminization. Mm-hmm. But almost all forced feminization is forced in yeah, air quotes, air sort of quotes. like. It's so true. I mean, because forced anything, right? Like the moment that two people are coming together to enact a scene, we are talking about a mutually negotiated scene. I am not going out and grabbing someone off Seventh Avenue and putting them in a dress, yeah. right? I'm co-collaborating with someone to do the scene that's going to involve some cross-dressing. Um, like there's some consent that's inherent in it. I think that. Again, I can't... I, here's the... This is the take-home. We can't, by virtue of the behavior alone, say that something is healthy or unhealthy. We need a bigger context. We need to have some information about the internal state of both people involved and what their connection is together. Yeah. So there are very unhealthy ways to do the most benign of acts, and there are extremely healthy ways of doing the most edgy and potentially dangerous of acts. Um, I think that things like forced feminization... And I'm going to, I've actually had people ask about diaper play, which of course someday I'm going to get here and I'm going to do an entire show on diapers, I hope. Um, these are things where folks are often playing with the taboo mm-hmm. and the, the sense of the not permitted or forbidden or um, shameful act is a huge part of the heat and the draw for the play. And I will notice that many folks, if I'm going to get someone who has a really pow- powerful post-play shame response, which is a very uncomfortable thing yeah. for the person experiencing it and the person trying to hold them through it, right? It'll be in those areas. It'll be in one of those those styles of play. Why am I into this? Why, why did I just do that? I know that there are people who are... Um, I, I've had emails from people, too, that if, I, if in the course of an episode... We talked about forced buy or forced feminization. Yeah, forced buy like is the other one I love. Right, right. I'm like, really? Really you don't want that cock? Because <laughs> right, it kind of right. looks like you do to me. <laughs> the idea being that it's offensive to uh, real bisexual people, and it's offensive to people who are either female mm-hmm. or uh, or do enjoy being feminized. Absolutely, right? yeah. And so there are people who took great umbrage to me talking about it, I mean, yeah. there are people who can be offended by anything, but yeah. but and I can understand why they'd be offended, mm-hmm. right? Like, I just want to create space for that. I think that um, I think bisexual people get to be really annoyed and pissed off and um, and actually oppose individuals. I'm going to just call it primarily men who identify as heterosexual who have forced by fantasies, yeah. um, or who have. Um, Forced, you know, that, that, you know, female identified people can be like, hey, this is really like sexist. Let's use the term. You know, this is really biphobic. This is really sexist to folks who have forced feminization fantasies. Yeah. Um, 
And there's, you know, like that's, it's a, it's a taboo place to play. And as a person who brings a lot of anti-oppression politics to my own play, I'm often wanting some insight from partners about like, what is it that's shameful about me putting you in panties? Because I wear panties every day and I don't find them particularly shameful. So here's the catch 22 Mm -hmm. is, um, if you're preventing someone or if you're calling someone out, you're force bias offensive, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that's their sexuality. Mm-hmm. So in that case, you're not being sex positive. But at the same time, you know what I'm yeah. saying? And well, you're not directly hurting someone. And you know, so it's, thing. It's, so if my, I don't know the answer to this. I'm yeah. just saying there's really no way to not offend someone. I have right? a suggested um, behavior ethic. Um, so if... I'm a person who has a hard limit around playing with someone who does force femme. I'm going to speak that to them, and I will not play with those folks. Mm-hmm. And those folks should be prepared to not ask me to play. Sure. This is not me. I do happen to really love putting panties on men. Yeah. Um, and I don't care if they like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm fine with the gamut. Um, and they will often get a little gender lecture with me, right? There's there's, there's always room for Judith Butler. But it's, um, it's not something I find oppressive. Right. Um, so a part of that is understanding my private behavior might be a limit for some folks, and it might be a limit for some folks because it actually makes them feel further marginalized and I want to respect that and not stomp on them. And then I also want folks to take personal responsibility for fetishes or sexual interests that serve deeply personal needs and may be problematic in culture by not having to make manifestos about them, right? We don't need men making manifestos about why rape fantasies or forced bisexuality or race fetishism are okay. Like It's a problematic desire. It's one you deserve to have settled and, and or taken care of, take care of it in a way that's respecting the fact that this could actually really step on other folks who've not consented to be a part of your scene. Sure. You're not going to get to play with everyone. That doesn't make you bad. Right. It just means take care of yourself. These are these are your personal sexual needs. It doesn't have to actually be expanded to, and I'm right to do it and everybody else should watch me and everyone should agree with me. <laughs> right, right. Right? You can just take care of your needs on your own. Fine. Uh, there will be plenty of folks who will want to take care of those needs with you. Yeah. All right, cool. All right. We've covered so many topics. We've got, we have. Thank you so much for doing this. Always a pleasure. This is a piece of cake, and uh, I'm sure someone is going to send a question in moments after they hear this. You're too late. You should have been following Twitter and sending a a question in there. Right. um, All the more reason to follow Massacast on Twitter. And you as well. Thank you. And uh, you're you're uh, Morgana. Um, at, at Morgana May, nice. That you're revealing your Midwestern origins there somewhere. <laughs> there. Anytime I hear that hard A, at Morgana May, um, or mistressmorgana.com. No, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you uh, took time out of your busy schedule. We almost didn't make it. Man, we heard the around and it was really great. So thank you for thank you. making it available. And I would love to come back and talk anytime. And if someone wants to get in touch with you, you they can find you on your website. There'll be a link on the Massacast website to find it and. Uh, if someone wants a good read, they should check out your website, not for spank bank material. So. <laughs> I do talk about the spanking. There's good stuff there, but yeah, it appeals to a slightly um, more uh, heady, cerebral crowd. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> heady, wordy. Yeah, Words. heady, wordy. Gets me off. That's good. Thank you so much. Thank you, sweetheart. Uh, you can find Morgana's info, all of that, on the Massacast website. Also, more details on uh, the exclusive rope dojo bonus gift also on the website are the uh, details uh, if you want to register for the rope dojo mention the massacast and you'll get uh, a huge bonus gift with like a hundred bucks from the stockroom. but you gotta hurry uh, because it's coming up thanks for listening we'll talk to you later bye bye